Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of the IEMA podcast, Greening the News. I'm Sarah Mukherjee, and I'm Chief Executive of IEMA, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. We support more than 18,000 professionals in more than 115 countries with their journey in environment and sustainability, with skills training and development, networking and information. We also work at international, regional and national levels to make the change our members want to see through policy development. So it's not that long ago since there were tears and a few cheers at the end of COP26, the UN summit in Glasgow that brought together representatives from more than 190 countries in what was hailed as the last best chance to prevent the worst consequences of climate change. There was some encouraging progress on halting deforestation and an agreement to reduce, if not eliminate, fossil fuels. But a Climate Change Committee report published this month reiterated that the UK is nowhere near meeting the emissions targets set at that summit. The UK did take one very significant step during the summit, and that was to enshrine in law the Environment Act. At the heart of the measures in that piece of legislation is the Office of Environmental Protection, with its stated aim to protect and improve the environment by holding government and public authorities to account. Well, in a moment, I'll be joined by the chair of this new body, Jane Glenis Stacey. But first, here's Andre Farah with his roundup of this month's news. Accelerating growth in renewables is being driven by evolving climate and energy policies around the world, made both before and at the recent Glasgow Climate Conference, COP26. Some 290 gigawatts of new renewable energy was installed this year. The record year for renewables is revealed in a report by the International Energy Agency. At this rate, the capacity of renewable energy will top fossil fuels and nuclear energy by 2026. Good news, but this is still going at only half the rate needed to hit the net zero targets by mid-century. As economies around the world ramp up their response to the climate emergency, reminders of why urgency is important are not hard to find. Climate models reveal a risk of rain in the Arctic becoming the main form of precipitation if warming is not kept below 3 degrees. A Canadian-led study points to profound implications as global heating accelerates, which would drive sea level rise and the mass starvation of reindeer and caribou. Even at lower temperature rises, rainfall will dominate in some areas of the Arctic. Even this year, rain fell on the summit of Greenland's ice cap for the first time in recorded history. Ultimately, rapid warming in the Arctic will have the potential to drive more extreme weather events by the influence a warming environment will have on the jet stream. DEFRA's Climate Adaptation Minister Joe Churchill attended a recent summit convened by the National Trust, bringing together some of England's largest landowners to frame commitments to help meet government net zero targets and reverse environmental damage. The focus was on practical commitments such as more woodland creation, peatland protection, reconnecting rivers and tackling coastal erosion. The red list for birds in the UK has just been published, revealing that the number of species of highest conservation concern has almost doubled from 36 to 70 in the last 25 years. The latest additions to the list includes birds familiar around our homes and communities. House martins, swifts and greenfinches have declined by more than 50%. 
Amongst the themes reinforced by this latest study indicates the fortunes of woodland, farmland and upland birds have not improved and the prospects for long-distant migrants have worsened. Despite this depressing picture, there are successes as dedicated conservation programmes have improved the prospects for white-tailed eagles and new colonists indicate the importance of the UK as birds with a formerly more southerly distribution continue to move north. Known for his support for environmental issues, pulp frontman Jarvis Cocker has teamed up with DJ Wrighton to issue what's billed as the first sustainability banger. Let's Stick Around was released during COP26 to encourage action to address the climate crisis. Thanks, Andre. So joining me now is the Chair of the Office of Environmental Protection, Dame Glenis Stacey. Dame Glenis, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So if we could start perhaps with that summit in Glasgow, COP26. Looking at it, you know, there were, as I said, there were some tears or a few cheers. Uh, how do you feel it went? And what are your thoughts now that we're kind of digesting the information, as we always have to, from those you know, intensive last 48 hours of talks? Thank you. And I think it was a big step forward, actually. It was a chance to assess progress worldwide in delivering the Paris Agreement's long-term goal to limit global warming. It was a chance as well to raise ambition, and we saw some of that. So we know that PACT now commits countries to phase down unabated coal, and it gives us a common time frame and methodology for national commitments on emissions reductions, for example. And we saw new initiatives agreed as well. You mentioned the one relating to deforestation, but we had reduction of methane emissions covered and also the phasing out of fossil fuel subsidies and increasing funds to help poor countries cope with the effects of climate change and make the necessary switch to clean energy. So yes, I think there's a lot to appreciate actually in in what happened. There'll always be greater ambitions, of course there will, but we do know that ambitions have advanced really since the Paris Agreement but not yet enough to meet the temperature goal. And this is the issue, isn't it? So the immediate issue is how the Glasgow Climate Pact and other initiatives are actually followed through on the ground now here and in other countries to make the biggest difference that we can. So as I mentioned, uh, Chris Stark, the Chief Executive of the Committee for Climate Change, was quite clear and quite direct in his uh, view that we really aren't doing enough. We're nowhere near where we should be in terms of even meeting the targets that were agreed in COP26. And do you think that is achievable? Uh, Is that a path, a trajectory that we can get onto? So Chris Stark and I agree that success of COP26 is actually to be measured on really what happens after COP26. So um, we need action here at home and action in our role as a world leader as well. So at home, we know we need to make sure that we deliver our own commitments. We've got a a good target actually for net zero by 2030, but we need to build on that, build on that ambition and work at all levels. You know, we've got a net zero strategy that shows us the way. uh, And now we need to be sure that we have underpinning policies, you know, the delivery arrangements as well, actually to bring it about. And we are going to have to do more to 
adapt to the effects of climate change as well. And, you know, individuals across the country need help with that. You know, we need much better signalling about what we need to do as individuals to make the difference that we can. Can I say as well, it's not just about um, climate change. We need to work through other important initiatives, such as the Convention on Biological Diversity taking place next year in China, as it happens. It's going to be the biggest biodiversity conference in a decade and we're going to be aiming to halve our biodiversity loss and I mention it because we know that climate change habitat and biodiversity loss are all linked and so it's not just about reducing emissions we also need to protect and restore our natural carbon sinks and our habitats and wildlife and we've got a lot of thinking to do there most definitely so a lot to do at home but a lot to do as a world leader as well and we're still president of cop 26 so we must continue to press for stronger 2030 uh, targets in other countries stronger commitments i think and also uh, uncomfortable though it is, we need to see money flowing from developed to developing countries so that we can see that the necessary changes globally can actually come about. So yes, some progress, but much more to do. I think our conservation members will have Christmas cheer, as you mentioned, at the Biodiversity COP as well, because I think there's a feeling that this is sometimes seen as a bit of a poor relation. Um, there's an argument, as you said, that you could see them now as two sides of the same coin. They were set up at the Earth Summit as separate processes. But in fact, we had a Nature Day at the Climate Change Summit, and I'm sure there'll be talk about uh, sustainable finance at the Biodiversity uh, Summit. Do you think we could perhaps do more to bring those two processes together. So we are seeing them much more holistically. I would hope so. I mean, they're so very closely interrelated. They're not divisible. But our thinking is more progressed in relation to climate change, isn't it? Our governance arrangements are more progressed as well in this country and internationally. Uh, so it is a bit, a bit of catching up to do for the biodiversity agenda. And also, I think, underlying that we can see it's just so much more difficult i mean climate change and grappling with that is difficult enough but dealing with the issues in relation to biodiversity it is extremely challenging but all the more reason to get on with our thinking now and get on with it I think that's a really good point at which to maybe talk a little bit more about the OEP, which of course we should say is England only. Um, you are now officially the chair of the OEP. You've been chair designate for some time until the Act uh, received royal assent uh, last month. What's in your inbox and what would you like to see the office delivering in the next 12 months? Yes, that's right. We've been an interim body for several months and now we are vested as a body proper and waiting for our powers to come into effect early next year. So, uh, so far, so good. We've, we've been spending this time getting this organisation up and running. Uh, a good amount of that actually has been around recruitment because we want the best of people. And we've been very fortunate in so many good people actually applying to become part of the OEP. And we've been going hell for leather actually to recruit good people and to get them in post at the first opportunity and you'd appreciate that takes a bit of time because people have to serve notice and so on so we're just gradually seeing the organization now truly come uh, into being uh, in that sense but we haven't been just doing that we've also been putting our thinking caps on 
and thinking hard about the strategy that we will adopt, the wider strategy, but also our approach to enforcement, for example. So we're ready uh, early in the new year to start formal consultation on those matters. So do please watch out for that, those that are listening to this. We want to hear from people about the approach that we wish to adopt to our broad powers as well as our approach to enforcement and we really do want to listen to what you've got to say so we've been doing a lot of thinking and talking with others about that and we're ready to to do that now uh, two other things to mention one is that we are at the same time as building the organization producing uh, real work. So we've already given advice to government in relation to its guidance on its environmental principles for departments, which I know has been well received. And we are well on the way to producing our first stock take, if you like, of where the country stands in relation to its efforts to protect and enhance our environment. So a bit of a stock take, uh, really, of, of how things are and what does need to change in order to make the difference needed. And we'd hope to publish that around about the spring of next year. So a good amount of effort really been going into that as well. And then lastly, of course, we've been developing all of the other policies and procedures that you need as an organisation. And it's tedious, but it needs to be done. As to what happens over the next year, well, yes, we, we, we get our powers in January. We produce, as I've said, a consultation on our strategic approach and our stock take report on how things stand at the moment in relation to the environment. But we begin to receive then uh, complaints from individuals or organisations about environment matters in England. And we are able to uh, progress those matters that we think to be serious. We can take other matters that we think to be serious, other issues apart from those that come up by way of complaint. And so I envisage over that year, we are going to be identifying specific issues, either through the complaints route or otherwise, where we think at the OEP, we can make a positive and material difference. And we'll be doing that in the best way that we can. And that may be through robust enforcement proceedings, or it may be through reviewing the law or providing advice to government or whichever tool in our kind of tool bag is best uh, to serve the issue, really. You mentioned England only. I mean, obviously, you may get complaints that could be cross-border. Inevitably, the way that rivers, they don't really notice uh, national boundaries or indeed landscapes or catchment areas. Um, how are you going to address uh, working as four nations when you are responsible for one? Thank you. So I should say, first of all, that we're hoping to take responsibility for environmental governance in Northern Ireland, but that's not quite settled yet. The Assembly is still to go through that and come to a final view. But we stand ready and we very much like the opportunity to do that. Uh, but yes, we've got Environmental Standards Scotland already established, and we've got uh, a commissioner in Wales as well, whilst Wales determines its final arrangements for environmental governance. And we're already working with those bodies at a strategic and operational level. We meet uh, regularly, and indeed, we're just uh, working up you know, the classic memorandum of understanding, setting out our arrangements, because, as you say, we know that... Uh, not only do environmental issues not recognise borders, but there are common approaches that we can adopt, you know, and we can learn from each other as well. We're all new, aren't we? You know, it's a new governance development, really, having these bodies, and we are stronger together. So uh, there's no doubt we'll have a lot uh, to benefit, actually, from working closely.
Being so new and having legislation that supports you that is pretty internationally groundbreaking, have you been able to see any best practice exemplars in other countries that you have managed to learn from? I think what you say is right, actually. There's a lot of international interest in these developments and it's, I would say, you know, a, a confident government that's prepared to take these steps and enshrine this oversight in legislation with an independent body. I don't know of any equivalent elsewhere across the globe. So it's not that we're able to readily learn and pick lessons from elsewhere. In any event, I personally don't think that uh, policy tourism or policy shopping is a good idea. I do think that uh, solutions need to be contextualized. They need to work well where you are. And you know, we're very fortunate here in being a new body with a, with a good set of powers, able to think how we best use them for the benefit of this country and its environment. So yes, we're in the vanguard, if you like. Now, as you say, this is new legislation with, with new uh, possible implications for every single sector in the UK. There's been, as you know, I mean, an awful lot of interest from businesses and the private sector. Um, what do you think the Environment Act means for businesses? And are there any key steps that you would recommend perhaps at this early stage that businesses could take to be aware of and perhaps even ahead of the curve in terms of the legislative responsibilities? Thank you. Well, there are specific, as you say, responses and requirements set out in the Act that affect certain sorts of businesses. So, for example, the mandatory biodiversity net gain requirement for built developments is relevant to all those in building. And then we've got extended producer responsibility for uh, an electronic waste tracking as well, a prohibition uh, on large UK businesses from using commodities associated with wide-scale deforestation and requirements for businesses to reduce the level of sewage discharge from storm overflow. So all of these things uh, are welcome. But I also think that businesses as a whole can take comfort by the fact that the Environment Act is one step, if you like, in providing greater certainty, greater certainty for business, because that is the overriding requirement. Businesses want to know what uh, government wants to achieve for the environment, what targets are set, and then how government intends to meet those targets and what businesses' role will be in meeting those targets. And they need to have confidence that these things are long-standing, that they're challenging but achievable, and that government and the way that government regulates and the way that government funds will all come together to encourage the sort of innovation, determination and action that is needed to deliver these targets. And it is, it is a first step, the Environment Act, it's a, a very powerful one in my view. You mentioned sewage discharge and water pollution. Obviously, this is something that has received an awful lot of press coverage uh, recently. Does that make your job easier or more difficult? <laughs> That's an interesting question. So, obviously, it's an important matter. Indeed, it's part of a, a bigger issue, isn't it, about the quality of our water, really. It's not simply just uh, sewage. It's actually a, a bigger issue altogether, in my view. And, of course, it's a very concerning issue, and indeed, we've seen reports from select committees and others, and we've seen very recent action by the Environment Agency and the appropriate regulator of what in looking at you know, some activities that have been of great concern to them, activities by the water companies. So we can see that 
there's a large raise level of interest and some determined action taking place. We will consider that alongside the position on other pertinent issues, for example, air quality and what is happening to make sure that that meets our minimum standards, or indeed the way that marine environments and habitats are degrading. And our job, our challenge, if you like, is to find that with the limited resources we've got, the biggest difference we can make, the biggest positive difference. Now, that might be in relation to sewage discharge, but it equally might well be in relation to marine habitats or another matter. And in the new year, we're going to be consulting on our approach to prioritisation, our approach to effectively deciding what we do when. And I'm really looking forward to the responses to that from your members and others. But in short, I don't think the publicity helps or hinders us, actually. I think evidence, you know, the evidence that is generated in relation to these matters is enormously helpful to us. You mentioned the evidence. You sit, in a way, in the, as the fulcrum of policy development, of law, of environment, sustainability and conservation. How do you manage that balance? And to, to your point about setting up an organisation, presumably the, the skill set that you'd been looking for was perhaps in some cases quite difficult to find. Well, we need a mixture of skills, don't we? And they don't all need to be in one person. So, yes, we need uh, to be politically astute as an organisation. We need to be strategic. Uh, we need to be evidence-based. We need to be expert. And we need to be pretty agile, really, to kind of make sure that we do the right things at the right time. Part of the solution there is, uh, without getting too technical, but in the way that you design an organisation, so there's sufficient flexibility in it, and indeed that we can bring resources in, expertise in from outside for specific projects and so on. So making sure that we can have at our disposal so the capabilities that we need at any one time is important in the way that we've designed the organization and then being very sure about the key roles and responsibilities at the senior levels in the organization so that across that senior team we've got all bases covered you know which is what we've been working at in a determined fashion but yes it is a unique position i think that we occupy and i'm very determined that we make the most of it and the skills you mention, among them legal expertise and policy development expertise, they tend to sometimes, and you know, I have my hand up here, I speak as a former law graduate of many years ago, but they tend to be considered perhaps more conservative in terms of risk taking or agility. And yet the year ahead that you've outlined is all about breaking new ground. Do you think that you can be both, you can have a foot in that kind of conservative camp, but also be agile enough to do something that nobody's done in the world before? I certainly do. And actually, this isn't a unique challenge, oddly. You know, all regulators face this. You know, people who work in an oversight body naturally tend to want a comprehensive body of evidence, for example, before they make a determined action. And that can sometimes, you know, be take an awful long time, let's put it that way, to get to a decision-making point. They'll always want to be sure and more than sure. And these aren't bad attributes. You know, you don't want your oversight bodies just you know, doing things at the drop of a hat without due consideration. But what you do have in a good oversight body is good leadership and indeed a good ambitious board that is able to say at any one point, now is the time for action or these are the priorities. So you need that balance. And actually, it's part of good governance within a body like the OEP, 
that you've got your expertise, you've got your lawyers uh, evaluating risks, but also evaluating how you achieve what you want to achieve with minimum risk. Yeah. So it's not just how you avoid risk, but how you get to where you need to uh, without inviting undue challenge, for example. So I think it is all in the balance, but we have a, a very good board and I'm confident that they will do what's required. Now, there has been some criticism, particularly from some of the environment NGOs and uh, environmental charities about the perceived independence of the OEP. Some people have said, you know, yes, you're arm's length, but you're not arm's length enough. Do you think you've got sufficient freedom to perform the duties, which, as you've outlined, could make a a huge difference to the way we do business and the way we, we live within our environment in England? Well, there's certainly been a great deal of interest in our statutory provisions and, you know, the extent to which they secure our independence. And it's been delightful, actually, to see that level of interest and to watch closely the debate as it's happened. And I, you know, applaud those who've been consistently pressing for our independence and a strong constitution and the right funding and the right range of powers. Thank you very much indeed. All oversight bodies, I should say, always want the widest breadth of powers. It just comes with the territory. You know, we just want the biggest possible toolkit. But actually, we've got a fair toolkit. You know, we've got quite a wide range of powers and responsibilities and duties as well. So I think that's okay. I can understand the concerns about independence. Of course, people want this to work. You know, they've championed the notion of the OEP for so long. And they do fear, you know, that as we have left the European Union, that somehow oversight will lessen. But it's our job as part of the new government's range is to make sure that we play our full part in in holding government and public bodies to account. And if I may say, statutory provisions about independence are important, and we've got some interesting ones, unusual ones in our Act. For example, the Secretary of State has a duty at all times to have regard to the need to protect our independence. But actually, you know, independence is all in the doing, in my experience. I have seen organisations with very strong constitutional arrangements buckle under pressure. And I've seen other organisations that have relatively weak constitutional provisions stand up and be counted. And I think it is all about how we now get on and do this job. Um, So where do you see the OEP sitting with lots of bodies that are already in this area, Environmental Audit Committee, we've got Environment Agency, Natural England, DEFRA itself. And of course, you know, there are very few areas of life in England that the OEP won't directly or indirectly affect. So where, where are you in relation to the current structure? Well, you're right, it's a very busy field and we need to have a clear position in it. So public authorities like the Environment Agency, it's relatively straightforward. We are overseeing their compliance with environmental law and that's understood by those public authorities and understood by us. When it comes to select committees and parliament in general, we have a great deal of common interest actually in making sure that our environment is protected and enhanced and that the law is complied with. And, you know, there's areas of very common interest there. So we sit hopefully all square with parliament, but ready to account to select committees for our actions when they wish us to do so. Our relationship with DEFRA and indeed with other 
departments of government is again one of oversight. So we are looking to see that DEFRA and other uh, government departments comply with the law and do, do what is needed. Now, clearly we have a, a particular interest in DEFRA because so much of delivery of the current version of the 25-year Environmental Improvement Plan rests at their door. Dame Glynis, we always finish our podcast by asking whether our contributors are optimists or pessimists. I think from what you've said over the last 20 minutes or so, I've got an inkling, but are you an optimist or a pessimist in terms of the future and climate change and environment and sustainability? So I would describe myself as a realist, but I'm very determined, (laughs) absolutely determined to make the biggest possible difference for the benefit of uh, our country. That's what we'll be doing. And Glenis, thank you so much for being with us with, for what was a, a fascinating conversation. And uh, I'm sure we'll get lots of feedback and comments from our listeners. Thank you so much. Um, just a reminder to everyone, this is our last podcast of 2021. Where may I wish you a very happy festive season if you celebrate it wherever you are in the world. And give a big thank you to Maria Belen and Abby from the IEMA team for producing this podcast this year from all of us to all of you. Thank you and see you in 2022.